Hello and thank you for joining us for this very special episode of Back of the Grid. Earlier this month, Chris and myself, Tom, were joined by motorsport and Formula One journalist and author, Maurice Hamilton, to discuss his new book, Formula One, The Official History. We hope you enjoy it. It was a very insightful chat with a fantastic member of the Formula One community. Hi, Maurice. Thank you very much for joining us. Uh, Could you do us the pleasure of introducing yourself, letting us know a little bit about you, and of course, your new book, Formula One, The Official History? Yeah, thank you. Nice to be here. Nice. Thank you very much for inviting me along. Uh, I've uh, been covering Formula One as a professional since 1977. I'm afraid to say that long ago. Uh, so I've done over 500 Grand Prix uh, live, as it were. And uh, I've been writing books since 1987. And the this one that I, the most recent one that we're talking about, um, people, uh, Liberty Media, through uh, a marketing company working with them wanted to mark the uh, fifth sorry the 70th anniversary of the Formula One World Championship which of course as we know started at Silverstone in 1950 and they wanted my ideas for a book to recognize that and as you can imagine it's a very big subject indeed um, and you could you could do several volumes of books on it so given the restrictions that, that they gave me for the amount of space we had the amount of words I could use I figured the best way to do it um, was rather than have a boring sort of year by year, and then we did this and then they did that, blah, blah, blah. I've actually split it into seven decades. And in each decade, each chapter as it were, uh, I've written an essay on what I felt was significant in each decade. So it's kind of personal in a way, because of course you can't cover everything. So I've covered what I thought were the relevant topics from my point of view, the things that I thought were important. And that could be anything from the drivers fighting for the World Championship to technical developments, to political developments, to the Fisa Fuka War, whatever it might be. And just painted the picture and tried to create the mood uh, for each of those seven decades. So that's in fact what we've got. And then we've got some very nice pictures to go with it. And hey, presto, you've got a book. And what's that process been like, sort of trying to curate and summarize seven decades of a sport into one book like where do you even begin with that <laughs> that's a good question yeah i know when i when i signed a contract in london and came back home i thought bloody hell what do i start? <laughs> <laughs> um it's a very good question and actually it was a absolute treat for me because um of course uh i'm i'm old enough to have got fangio's autograph to give you a clue oh wow so, uh, um i i saw racing in the 50s with my dad uh, and then um, I cover. I was a fan in the '60s, and then I started, as I say, I started writing about it professionally in the '70s, and then on we went from there. So it was a trip down memory lane for me, really. And uh, I have in my archives here. I've got uh, bound volumes of Autosport from day one, 1951, uh, right through. And you know, you start going through those. And a whole day disappears because you you're not just you're not just looking at what you're aiming for about a particular topic you want to get find check out say in 1967, you end up then looking at the adverts and looking at the club racing and thinking oh yeah God I remember that and um, it it just was lovely I mean I it was a question of knowing what to leave out that was the hard part yeah. but but once you got into it and into the rhythm of it um, and then you, you at the beginning of each decade you thought now oh, what was important here. And you skimmed through and you went through the championships and then you begin to build a picture and then you remembered various things that were important. And another help I had was I've been writing uh, for a South African monthly magazine called Car for over 30 years. 
we do a column every month for them. It's been really fun with them. I met them at the South African Grand Prix for the first time in 77. And um, that diary, if you like, I, I've, cut, I've got all the cuttings for that. And just to leaf through that, it's a terrific aid memoir. You, you think, oh my God, yeah, I forgot about that. And then little details, little sort of backstories, if you like. So all of that made the whole thing an absolute treat. I really, I really love doing it. That sort of brought me on to another question I was, I was about to ask, which is, is there anything that digging back through that back catalogue of just everything that you've, you've written and experienced over the years, is, is there anything that sort of surprised you as being a bit of a forgotten memory or, or even something that you dug up that you didn't even have in the catalogue, like some, a little piece of trivia or knowledge you didn't know until going back to review it for this book? Um, not... I can't really think of anything. I can't put my finger on anything straight away. Um, it, it was just rem- remembering things like um, dealing with, I think the thing that come, came across quite strongly was uh, how much Formula One has changed. I mean, you know, it's changed. I mean, I obviously, obviously, you know, it's changed, but you forget just how much it's changed. Uh, and by that, I mean the structure of it, By that I mean the way we worked. And, and I'd, and I'd forgotten many things like, um, you know, I, I find pictures of myself with a manual typewriter or a portable typewriter. Computer. <laughs> <laughs> and you think, oh, yeah, Christ, I had to carry that thing around with me. Uh, <laughs> I had to carry paper to put in it. And then that leads you on to remembering, do you know what? Uh, when I had to um, file my stuff, because I, I wrote for The Guardian uh, from 1978 to the and the Independent started in 1986, and it was the Indy from 86 to I joined the Observer in 1990 for 20 years with the Observer, then after that. And initially with the Guardian, uh, not less so with the Independent because computers were coming in, but with the Guardian, you had to write your story, type it out, and then phone the copy across to the Guardian newspaper in London. And I mean, what a performance that was. So, you know, you, you, you tend to forget that because it was a nightmare. I mean, it was really terrible. And the same way you, you look at access to the drivers, which was so easy uh, compared to today, um, you know, in the 70s particularly, because there was no PR people, there was no press officers. Yeah. So you'd go up to the driver when, when he walked into the paddock and you'd say, hey, listen, I need to talk to you this weekend, any chance? And he'd say, yeah, after practice tomorrow. And then you'd go and he might forget, you might not see him. And it was sort of very sort of hit and miss. But eventually, if you did get him, you get a lovely informal chat, particularly if you got to know him quite well. Whereas today, it's very regimented, so it's, it's not so... You don't get the soundbite. I mean, you get soundbites today, but um, a couple of decades ago, uh, they would tell you stuff off the record, which, of course, they can't do now because they've got the PR person looking over the shoulder. So I, th- I think that really was underlined very much uh, by going back through it and, and just... Um, reading all my my columns and stuff and thinking oh yeah gosh i've forgotten about that so that was the main change i think that i noticed i mean i I personally love the story of how you actually got into motorsport and journalism itself because of um (laughs) how you got the credentials that you needed to get uh, into the paddock and so on like do you mind just sort of briefly sharing that story for the benefit of some of our listeners that possibly won't know it yes of course um it was, uh, I, I'd come to England from Northern Ireland in 1970 with the sole purpose of trying to get into motorsport somehow. I hadn't a clue how I could do it. I was a salesman selling office equipment and um, all sorts of stuff just to earn money to go to the races. And, and But I didn't know anybody. 
And um, I eventually wormed my way in and got a magazine called Competition Car to publish my first article, which Nigel Roebuck, bless him, was the editor. And that started our long friendship. But um, I didn't have a, a, a pass to get into the races. You know, that was the hard part. So the Grand Prix I'm talking about. So um, I found that uh, if you had a, um, a letter from your motoring authority in your country, if you went to Germany and you showed them this letter, which said you're a bona fide journalist, they would give you a pass. So I went to the RAC, MSA, as it later became, and said, can you give me a press credential? And they said, no. <laughs> I said, what do you mean? They said, you're not a journalist. I said, I know I'm not, but I want to be one. And they said, well, until you are, we can't give you one. So I thought, sod that. So I've got to do something about this. So I found a company by complete accident that were making um, security passes, which were very new in the early 70s. You know, they, we've all got them now, the, the credit card size laminated pass that everybody's yeah. got. They were new. And I found a company making them. They were a little display in Victoria Station. They were, they were making them. Uh, and uh, I asked the guy, can he make me one? He thought I was mad. He said, <laughs> Why would you want a security pass for you? And I said, well, actually, I want you to make it look like a press pass, please. Put a, a picture on it. And he, and, he, and he said, yeah, okay. And he really, we really went along with it. And we gave myself a name. We, I borrowed an address in Kings Road, Chelsea, from a friend whose mother had a sweet shop, <laughs> I believe. Um, Tony Tobias was his name. And, um, and we, we made this dummy pass with my photograph, uh, the name of the company, Motor Racing News Service, I think I called myself, signed it and put names of magazines in the back, which I didn't write for. And I used that pass because it looked good because it was all laminated and everything. It looked really good. Um, I used that pass with cuttings from Autosport where I'd done club meetings at Lydon Hill, would you believe I was doing reports for? Mm. And that one article from Competition Car, um, which Nigel published for me. And I used that to talk my way in. And I actually did. I kid you not, took my way into the paddock at the Nürburgring in 76, Monaco 76. It took a long time. I had to keep going back. They kept rejecting me. And at the end, when they were everybody got in and they still had some passes left, they thought, I don't know, they must have felt sorry for me. But that's how I got in. Of course, you couldn't do that today with electronic passes, but it, it worked for me. And I still got the pass. I'm very, very proud of it, actually. <laughs> Amazing. Of, of the sort of various roles you've had over the years and all the years you've worked through, is there sort of one that stands out as a favorite or one you look back on most fondly? Well, you know, you, you guys are going to look back probably, I'm predicting, I think that you guys are going to look back on this present era as one of your favorites, because it's the one that, or perhaps the previous one, because it's the one you grow up with, isn't it? That, that you enjoy most, that that's the one that excites you. That's when all the excitement's there. And um, for me, I mean, I, I love the sixties, but particularly the seventies. Um, it was just so exciting and, and it was much more avant-garde than it, than it is now. Even though we had Ferrari and Lotus and the big names, there was the smaller teams at the back. It was easier to get around. Um, there was a certain romanticism attached to it, looking back, you know, with rose-tinted glasses, as you do. So they, they really were the eras. And, and of course, the 70s and then into the 80s were very important for me because that's when I was making my name. And I had these glorious stories just erupting all over the place, you know, um, with Nigel Mansell arriving in the 80s, the, the Prost and Senna a bit later on. Uh, wonderful stories to write about as a, as a journalist. So they were really great days. You know, those three eras, uh, for different reasons, were, were really great, 60s, 70s and 80s, I think. Yeah. Uh, going back to the present, how's this season been for you with the with the pandemic and the, the compressed season? Like, it's been a, it's been a 
very different one for a number of reasons. But I mean, how, how does it work for you as a journalist at this point and on what you do? Uh, well, it's a, it's a good question. Um, it actually hasn't affected me very much. Uh, I'm very, very lucky because um, I'm kind of slowing down anyway. I'm not, I'm not going to all the races. I mean, I, I did, I think I went to every race in succession from 1984 Brazil through to when my father died in, in August 2008, right through. And that breaking that chain, funnily enough, made me feel I didn't need to do them all anymore. And I started to drop a few, did maybe 10 a year. And now uh, in recent years, because it suits me, I'm not covering for a newspaper or doing radio or anything like that. I've done less and less. So we get to 2020 and I was only planning, I was going to go to the Dutch Grand Prix because I, I loved Zambord. Uh, I was obviously going to do the British. I was going to do the German. I was going to do the Italian because I love Monza. And I was going to do Abu Dhabi at the end of the year because I, I, I've been to everyone and I, I always enjoy it there. Um, that's all I was going to do. Well, of course, when the thing got knocked in its head, it didn't really affect me a great deal because I can still, I'm just doing columns and blogs and stuff now. So I can, and as I say, I was doing the book. So I could work quite happily from home. And my office has always been, I've always been freelance. I've always been self-employed. So I've always worked from either a small office locally or from where I am speaking to you now, my, my study in, in where I live. So I actually have been able to bash on with what I'm doing quite happily. Um, and uh, as I say, I'm very fortunate because I really, really feel for the young guys who, if, if this had been me 30 years ago, I would have been in deep trouble because I would have had a young family trying yeah. to make a way, trying to make a living. And you need, when you're a freelance, you need to be at the races. You need to be seen. That's how you make your contacts. That's how you get the work. And the poor guys now, uh, you know, I really feel for them because it's so difficult. Whereas I'm cruising at the top, I'm just, uh, you know, I'm all right. Has that compressed calendar that we've seen made much of a difference to that for you with you working from home? Like, I imagine it's probably a lot tougher for, for those that are in and out of racetracks weekend after weekend. But have you seen much of a difference with working from home as a freelance more often than not? Uh, no, no difference to me at all. Um, uh, but um, I, I'm actually, I've talked to some of the guys who've, who've been at the races and I don't envy them at all. <laughs> um, it's, you know, no joke because they're isolated and they can't get into the paddock. They can't, the whole beauty about being at the races is, is being there in quotes yeah. and getting your face seen and talking face to face with people and getting the feel and getting to understand what's going on, picking up the gossip. You know, there's so much you pick up from the gossip to understand what's really happening. Well, they can't do that. And in many ways, uh, I feel I know just as much because the sky coverage, as you know, is very good, very comprehensive. And you'll get, I get all I need from sitting at home, watching the telly, uh, reading everything that I can get online, um, you know, reading, reading everything on Twitter, reading all the little comments and so on. And then a couple of hours after the race is finished, um, I mean, I probably know more than the guys who are actually there because they're stuck. And so... I'm not affected at all. And I must say, um, when lockdown started and the whole thing kicked off, Australia was cancelled, as you know. I really feared, I really thought, this is, this is disastrous. Yeah. But I must tip my hat to Formula One, to Liberty, and to everybody. The way they've got this together, to give us the calendar that they've got, I think is terrific. I mean, it's a credit to them to do that. You know, when other sports, as you've seen, are struggling terribly, um, Formula One's bashing on they've got very good security seems to be working pretty well 
and good luck to them. They've done a terrific job. I'm delighted for them. Yeah, they really have. Um, that leads nicely onto the question, actually. Um, obviously, an upshot of this calendar is that we've had uh, revisiting tracks we've not used for a number of years or even going to brand new tracks. Are there any of them that stand out in particular to you? Any tracks that you'd like us to have on the calendar permanently going forwards? Yeah, Magello. I mean, what about that? I mean, I've never been... <laughs> I've been to most tracks. I've been very, very lucky. I've been to most circuits around the world, but that's one I haven't been to. And I thought that looked terrific. Okay, it's super fast, and uh, there wasn't much overtaking because of that. There's only into turn one, wasn't it? It was the only decent place you could have a go. But I thought it looked terrific, uh, old world circuit. Yeah, it has its problems, you know, as you would get with the, with the older style circuit. As we saw, when somebody went off, they had to bring the red flag out. You don't really want that these days in, in, in Formula One. But I, I'd love to see that. Um, we're going back to Imola. I've got very fond memories and obviously very sad memories too uh, of Imola, but I loved going there. That was a super circuit. We used to go in end of April, beginning of May. And of course the weather was beautiful and, and it was just a perfect time of year to go. Beginning of your European season, it used to be. Uh, we stayed in a lovely penchant just over the hill with the back way in, very good wine, very good pasta. So I'll miss going to Emla, I must say. Um, I'd, I'd like to go to Portimao. That looks good. Um, yeah. I, I have no idea what it's going to be like, but I'm, I'll be interested to see that. So I think that's a good move. But I think my one regret really is, is not getting to Zandvoort because I was so looking forward to going back there. Um, that is a fantastic... And I know they've cut it in two, more or less. But from what I can see... And from the Dutch guys that I that I know and talk to, they've actually made a very good job of it. So I was I I, I would have missed that. But I think, uh, yeah, fair play to them for just getting on with it and, and getting these races done. And it's been interesting too, hasn't it? Well, I don't know what you guys thought, but when you had the two races back to back in Austria and Silverstone, to, to think I thought that's not going to work. But actually, we had in each case two different races. It was interesting, wasn't it? Yeah, actually worked quite well, didn't it? Especially at Silverstone with the different tyre compounds of the two races as well, just to add a sort of extra um, degree of difficulty for the team. So I think, yeah, it did work really well. Yeah, I did. I agree. Yeah. I'm going to force you onto a topic here, Maurice, that comes up a lot lately, and that is the whole Lewis uh, Hamilton to Michael Schumacher comparison. Uh, obviously, as we all know, at the point of recording this, Lewis is a, a a win away from tying uh, Michael's record of, of race wins. And we all thought at one point a lot of those records that Michael set were going to be un, unbeatable and untouchable. But, I mean, how how do you compare the two personally? Like, there's a lot of a lot of opinions that fly around supporting <laughs> either camp. But, I mean, how, how do you personally see that, the comparison between the two? I agree with you totally that uh, when Michael set uh, one as 91st Grand Prix in 2006, I thought nobody is going to get within a mile of that. Because if you look back at the history, you know, previous ones, the previous levels had been in the 50s with Prost, 51. And then I can remember uh, the excitement when um, Jim Clark beat Fangio's record, moved it up to 24 and Jackie Stewart, 25. And Jackie Stewart got 27. Wow, that was in 1973. <laughs> you know, we really thought, so when Prost reached 51, we thought, wow, that's good, isn't it? So Michael gets to 91 and you thought, not a chance. Nobody has got a chance in hell of getting that. And here we are. Lewis has done the job. So how do they compare? Um First of all, you have to just tip your hat and say respect to both for winning 91 Grand Prix. It doesn't matter who you are. You do that. 
and that really is quite an achievement. And I think uh, Lewis is going to beat. He's going to he's going to beat that obviously this year. All, all things been equal, he's probably going to match uh, Michael's championship record. And if he stays around, which he probably will, uh, I think he's every chance of becoming the most winning or win the most championships with eight. That therefore puts him just that little bit ahead. But it's so hard to compare drivers from different. You know, I get asked this so much because oh, you've been around a long time. Well, who's the greatest driver? Well, I don't know. Because you cannot compare different eras. They're so different, so different challenges that they had. You know, the front, the front engine cars, the races that were twice as long as they are now, but there was less of them. You can score more points now. Um, the drivers don't have clutches and manual shift gearboxes anymore, but they're cornering faster. There's more stress. There's more G-force. It's more competitive. They're split by a tenth of a second, whereas it used to be seconds way back, you know, decades ago. So it's so difficult to, to, to make any comparisons. Um, the, the one thing you can see with, with uh, Lewis and Michael is that they both had this extra ability to get the whole team around them, to wrap their respective teams around them and get them to work for them, but also to explore every little minute detail in in being in the art of being a Grand Prix driver, they both have done that, and I think that's what you need. You need that little bit of extra edge, and then when you get into the car, they both have that extra fraction of a second, a, sec, a second, which you know it's that fraction that that um, Nico Rosberg looked for, and now Pierre Valtteri Bottas is looking for. You 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 work hard, you train hard. You work with your engineer, you think about everything under the sun, you barely sleep the night before probably, you, you work out the best tires, you get it absolutely right, you do a lap, you think, yeah, beat that, and blow me down, but Lewis goes and, goes and beats it by a tenth of a second, and you think, where the hell did that come from? You know, So Schumacher and Hamilton both had that extra little bit. So they're equal on that score. Where I would edge, and this is a personal um, thought, where I would edge Lewis Hamilton ahead is that he didn't feel obliged to push his competitors off the road. And mm. I, I, you know, I was working with Damon Hill, so I'm biased. I was working with Damon Hill in 94 on, on his book when all that happened, kicked off in, in Adelaide. And then, of course, I was also working with Williams and when we had the, the Jacques Villeneuve incident at Jerez in 97. And my thought in both occasions was, Michael, why, why are you doing that? Well, and, and when he had Barrow Keller into the pit wall in Hungary, do you remember that? And, yeah, and, yeah. And my first thought was, Michael, it's not necessary. You are so good. But he has this burning thing that, you know, he is the best, which is fine. They all have to think that. And he thinks, nobody's going to pass me because I'm going to win this race and you're not going to pass me. And um, it, that's the only little sort of negative I'd put against him because I – I don't think you should do that. And, and Lewis Hamilton, he may have edged Nico onto the, onto the dirt a bit of the first lap, say, in, in, in um, Austin. But uh, rarely do you see moves like that. So that's why I would give him that little extra edge when comparing the two. But otherwise, incredibly close. They're both very special guys, but very special racing drivers. It's been a privilege to watch. Yeah. Just slightly on this topic as well, before we move on from it, um, we did notice that the the cover of the book features Hamilton and Senna quite prominently, um, with with obviously the drivers as well. Um, do you have any involvement in that choice? And is there any potential that the book is covered differently for different regions to suit like 
um, regional fit bias to certain drivers or anything like that? Uh, that's, a, that's a good question. I have no idea. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I didn't even know what the cover was going to be like until the book arrived. So <laughs> I, I, had, I had no influence on that whatsoever. Um, it, what, uh, what I do know from experience is um, uh, well, I have been brought in, actually, funny enough, on choosing covers of other books, um, particularly, for example, the Nicky Lauder one recently. We had a long, many long debates about that we had a fine choice and I was brought in to help choose the, the, the cover shot for that. But with this one, no, I didn't even know what they were going to do. But what I do know is that um, when a publisher is producing a book like this, the marketing people have a huge say. And they will be looking for something on a cover that will help it jump off the shelf and appeal yeah. to, 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 to people. And I think that's what that's all about. Um, I, don't, I wouldn't imagine that this publisher, it's a British publisher, um, I wouldn't imagine they would go to the trouble of having a different cover for different, for different countries. The only thing they might do is um, if they sell the rights, and this has got nothing to do with me, I don't get involved in this at all. If they sell the rights to another country, uh, that country, the people publishing the book there, which is usually a separate publisher, may choose to do a different cover. I don't know. Right, yeah. Yeah, makes sense. Sort of looking back again, are there any drivers from over the years that you've always thought have been sort of underrated or whose results maybe didn't reflect their talent that don't get talked about as much as they perhaps should? Um, gosh. Well, Chris Amon, I mean, is just... Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm very fortunate to get to know him. And um, that guy's luck is just legendary. You know, it's just a bad luck. Yeah. Um, he was such a gifted driver. I mean, naturally gifted, fabulous driver. So um, he he is one that um, that particularly stands out. Um, other than that, um, let's see. Um, um, just I don't know if we talk a bit more. Have you, have you any thoughts on that? I mean, just just you can trigger some some thoughts from me because I can't. Um, Eamon, as I say, is the, is the one guy that stands out um, for me. He's probably the one of the more obvious answers, I think. It's, it's one of the things where Sterling Moss is always, or people talk about him as the best driver to never win a world championship. But oh, yeah. yeah. The yeah. fact that he gets talked about at all is, um, you know, <laughs> a shame when Chris Eamon is barely known a lot of the time. Yeah. We spent yeah. like two entire decades in, in the sport, essentially, I think, didn't he? Roughly. He did. He did, yeah. did, yeah. Um, no, I mean, Moss is an absolute classic. Moss was brilliant, um, really, really brilliant. And, and it kind of says, you do have to ask the question, well, what really is the world championship worth uh, you know, at the end of the day? But it, 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 he was his own worst enemy, as you know, because he would insist on driving uh, British cars, and that was his downfall on a couple of occasions. Mm-hmm. And also his, his incredible civility when he, he helped Mike... Mike Hawthorne win the championship in 1958, yeah. standing up for him. I mean, can you imagine that today? Yeah. <laughs> it wouldn't happen, would it? Yeah. But what a fantastic thing to do. So, yeah, um, uh, yeah, Sterling's just uh, Sterling. If I, I've been forced to do um, top 10 sometimes, you know, I, I've, I haven't been able to avoid it. Um, and I generally put him number one. Only because, uh, for me, there, I mean, when you're talking about the greats, you're talking about mega, mega drivers, okay? And, and who are we to know to actually start to nitpick? But for me, Sterling won in so many different things. That's the thing that really made him a great driver in my book. I know today's drivers don't have that opportunity, but he did. 
And I mean, the Mili Milia win in the Mercedes was just unbelievable, yeah. simply unbelievable. Yeah. And so that, that to me is, 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 yeah, why I would make him um, uh, my number, my making my number one. So, um, it's all right. Uh, we've got a couple of quick questions from um, some listeners. Just, just a quick, couple of quick opinion ones, really. Um, Paul Kelso asked, um, over your time in F1, which particular team has been a favourite for you? Uh, right. Um, I'm obviously uh, a bit biased on this one because uh, I work closely with Jordan. And um, my Irish connection, obviously, was very strong. And uh, I knew Eddie before he came into Formula One. And I just loved the way that team uh, worked. Um, they were just such fun. And they very kindly uh, gave me the opportunity to be a fly on the wall um, to do um, two books um, uh, with them and in 91, um, 92, and um, 98. And sorry, 90, no, 93, sorry, 98. And it was, they were brilliant. I mean, it was just a fantastic team to be with. Um, and they enjoyed life. That was the, that was the key thing. So I have, I have a very soft spot for them, even with the garrulous Eddie Jordan and some of the nonsense he talked. They still, <laughs> he, he was lovely for that. Um, but then, um, then I have to say Williams. Because, yeah. uh, I mean, I, I was very, very fortunate in that um, in my early days when I was just knocking on the door trying to get in, and I, I, I managed to talk my way into the, um, the press call that he had in 76 down at Didcot where they were launching the um, 77 car. And then I got, I, I, when they reformed when with Patrick, um, and I was in at the start and I got to know Frank very well. And then I did, uh, I did a book with them, with Damon. And, and then also I did a book on Williams, the team itself, um, where I talked to the guys, I made that all about the guys in the team and got them to talk about Frank. And I mean, what a record that team has. Utterly yeah. brilliant. You know, you think mm. of the driver's championships, the constructor's championships, they've got absolutely fantastic. So uh, I'm so sad to see Claire having to stand down and to, to sell up. And it's the, it's the end of, um, you know, a, a name in that uh, it was the man's name above the door was the team owner. You know, the yeah. name was the, owner, the team owner. That's not going to happen anymore. So a um, very soft spot um, uh, for Williams. Yeah, I think. And then oh, then another one, of course, which I was, I was very close to was Tyrrell. Um, yeah. Because again, um, I, I was lucky in, in that um, I was taken under the wing of a guy called Ian Young. He looked after me when I, um, you know, when I started off in 1977. Uh, he was my mentor, if you like. And uh, he worked with Tyrrell because his office was just up the road from the Tyrrell factory at Ockham. So I ended up going down there a lot to do stuff and got to know Ken. And Ken, in fact, was the very first man I interviewed as a professional, um, which was brilliant. It lasted an hour over gin and tonic in the Kyle Army Ranch. <laughs> it was just absolutely brilliant. We went out to dinner afterwards. And, and he was a kind of surrogate dad to me in that um, he kind of, he was quite gruff, as you know, and uh, he would just take me aside and say, what'd you write that for? What'd you say that for? And you said, well, uh, and you'd have to have a good reason ready because he would uh, give you constructive criticism about what you wrote in a very nice way. But if it was good, you get the phone would ring and he'd simply say, Ken here, nice piece. Goodbye. Hang <laughs> up. And that would be it. Efficient. So, uh, yeah. And that was a lovely, another lovely little family team. Um, very, very, I mean, you think of what they did. 
I mean, they produced a world championship car from a woodshed. Jesus, you know, it's, it's incredible. So, yeah. So uh, I, I'm afraid these are all going back a bit. You know, these are all teams going back a bit. But yeah, they've got, all three have got very, very strong memories for me. Lovely. Another quick one, which actually probably ties in quite well to something you said, uh, Craig Mitchell, probably knowing the connection, asked, uh, what is Eddie Jordan really like? Is he as mad as he can come across on the TV most of the time? <laughs> he is. <laughs> and he's, worse than, he's even worse than that. <laughs> Good to know. I mean, some of the things he does, we can't print. He's utterly outrageous. <laughs> Unbelievably outrageous, but so funny. And um, oh, we <laughs> Yeah, we've had many, many good times. One of the things I remember when between um, the Japanese and the Australian Grand Prix at the end of the years in the, in the 90s, uh, the early 90s, when we went from um, Suzuka to Adelaide and there was a spare weekend, we'd usually go to Sydney and hole up in Sydney and do some work and then meet up. And Eddie happened to be staying there um, and we hitched up with him on the Saturday and went out for uh, a long lunch, shall I say, which ended up on a boat in Sydney Harbour and lots of wine flowing. And when we, when we came ashore, he says, um, he says, there's a film on, he said, called The Commitments. I don't know if you guys know The Commitments. It's, the, it's about the Irish band that started up. And of course, Eddie been into music. Uh, he wanted to go and see this. And I don't know if he said, but this, it was the funniest film. And I <laughs> thought we were going to have to get the medical officers in to help him out. He was on the floor. He was in hysterics. He was just laughing <laughs> so much. And that was him. It's just a sense of humor to appeal to, you know. But he has done some outrageous things. Oh, my goodness. And with sponsors. You know, he, he was, well, I, he was summed up best. I'll choose my language very carefully here. But um, there was an Irish TV producer called Michael O'Carroll who had to work with Eddie on TV. And, and Michael actually said, he said, Eddie Jordan is the only man I know who can shake you by the hand and tell you to F off at the same time. <laughs> <laughs> and that's so Very great. Good. <laughs> um, just to sort of finish up, um, to look kind of ahead to the future a little bit, obviously now we've got uh, the new rule set coming in in 2022. We've got the new Concord Agreement. Uh, Stefano Dominicali taking over as CEO. Where do you sort of see... F1 um, sort of going forward over the next few years and especially with sort of some of the young talent coming through as well? I'm really excited. I mean, I think the, the young talent is brilliant. You know, we've got such, oh, I mean, look at that fight behind Lewis Hamilton at the, in the championship, you know, all those names, just just absolutely super. So uh, that that's taken care of, you know, with Charles Leclerc and Albon and, and uh, um, we've got Gasly as well and, um, We've got, we've got uh, Norris, Albon, all that lot, all, all coming through. Fantastic. For the actual racing itself, I'm so, I cannot wait. I'm so sad that the cars that we were supposed to see in 2021, now I have to wait for 2022 because personally, I can't wait to get rid of the current cars. <laughs> I, I hate the front wings. I think they're an abomination. Uh, I think they're hugely expensive. They get in the way. They get damaged. Uh, the work that goes into them is nonsense. Um, it's totally disproportionate to the rest of the car. The cars look big. Uh, I don't like them. So uh, as soon as we get the 2022 cars in and get on with it, and um, I, th I think uh, with the way the, the Formula One is getting itself organized, I've been very impressed overall with what um, Liberty has done. Um, I think, you know, Bernie, I, I, I'm not going to badmouth him because I have a lot to thank Bernie Eccleston for because he, raised Formula One onto a level that made it a viable platform for people like me to earn a living uh, and made it, made it uh, people wanted to watch it. 
his time had passed and Liberty have come in and I think they're doing a very good job. Ross Braun uh, in charge is, is, is perfect because he's poacher turned gamekeeper. He knows exactly what's what. They're not going to argue with him. It's what they need. Uh, Pat Simmons in charge, the technical side uh, to draw up these cars. We'll have to wait and see if it works. But I just want to see cars that can run in close company that aren't totally tire dependent, aren't totally aero dependent and can overtake each other. Can we please have some racing? Yes. You know, this nonsense now where we've got, where they're lapping sometimes two to three seconds off the pace they can do. That's not a race. That's nonsense. Yeah. So I want to, I'm hoping, fingers, fingers crossed, that we can get away uh, from the cars we've got into something new, that this era that they're planning and hoping for really does work and brings the racing back. Because if it does, well, as we've just said, we've got the young guys there to do it. They are, the, the talent that we've got coming up is fantastic. So it's very, very exciting. Yeah. Great. Uh, just one last one on, on the engine formula itself. Like this morning before we recorded this conversation with you, um, we found out about Honda's departure um, and and their reasoning behind it, seeing that, you know, they think that pure pure electric is is more the future and that they don't see the, t- the time and resource of investing in, in these engines for F1. Where do you think the, the engine formula itself may go in the future? Is there any way you'd like to see it go or any way that you expect to see it go? Well, that, this is a really good question. Um, I totally understand. I was a bit shocked when I heard the Honda news, but when you think about it, not surprised. Because, you know, they, the motor manufacturers have to go down this road. They have to. They have to think about that. They can't have uh, normally norm, the, the sort of um, engines that we've got today. Um, and so they, they have to be looking ahead to the future. But does that mean that Formula One has to go down the same route? Does that mean that the the pinnacle of motorsport has to go down that route? In some ways, you say, yes, it should be setting an example. And the other way, you have, the other question you have to ask is, but surely it should be entertainment. Surely it should be all about the racing. Surely, you know, I'm sure you felt the same. When you go to a motor race, it's such a sensual thing. Um, it's, it's the... It's the sort of the speed, the smell, and the sound. You've got to have cars, racing cars, Formula One cars, that look the part and sound the part, um, that look difficult to drive. And so I think they've got to find some middle ground somewhere where they get a formula that will um, not necessarily have manufacturers in because they're going to be so busy now with the e-formula, with, with, with going ahead down that road, that they might not be able to look at Formula 1, but you've got to somehow attract engine builders, the, the Ilmores of this world, what would have been back in the day, John Judd and people like that, to make engines, perhaps Cosworth, to, to make engines that will give us a spectacular and interesting formula, a formula that will sound good. You know, I think sound is really important. So big decisions have to be made here. Um, and I think Ross Brown is, is aware of that. Uh, where, how they do it, I do not know. Uh, but I don't think we should be going down the the all-electric route at all in Formula 1. Formula 1, we've got Formula E, that does that, um, and Extreme Formula and all the rest of it, they do that. Formula 1 should be something else, and the cars should look and sound difficult to drive. So over to you, Ross and company. How do you do that? I don't know, but that's the way I'd like to see it go. <laughs> Um, I think that's about all we've got time for, unfortunately. I think we could happily uh, sit here and chew your ear off your questions for the rest of the day, but uh, I know you're a very busy man, so we'll uh, we'll leave you to go. Um, but thank you so much for joining us. This has been a really, really interesting chat, and we've been 
very much enjoying flicking through the copy of the book that we were sent, uh, Formula One, the official history, which is out on the 15th of October. But yeah, thank you so much for joining us. It's been a really good chat. It's been my pleasure, guys. Thank you very much for having me along and talking about the book and good luck with your website. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm all for young guys coming through and enthusiasts like yourselves. So uh, all the very best of luck. Thanks thank a lot, you Maurice. so much. All the best. Thanks.